This is Leah Jones, Director of Financial Planning at Hightower Bethesda. Thanks for joining me today as I explore topics that I hope arm you with the ability to make smart financial decisions. Today, I am talking to Hightower Bethesda's own Stephen Rosen. Stephen is a partner and managing director at Hightower Bethesda. Prior to Hightower, he worked at UBS and Morgan Stanley as an advisor. He has over 25 years experience as an investment advisor, and about 20 years of that, he has actively been using alternatives as a core part of his investment philosophy. Today, we would like to provide perspective on something that is core to the Hightower Bethesda investment philosophy, and that is the use of alternatives. I've often heard you say, Stephen, it's the third leg of the stool. We have equities and bonds that everybody is, for the most part, familiar with, but then we also have alternatives as an important part of diversification and stability, if you will, for our clients. Stephen, talk a little bit about how that philosophy got adopted from your perspective. Okay. Thanks, Leah. So thanks for having me for starters. Clearly, I listen to all the podcasts and they all are great. So I'm looking forward to participating in this one. The genesis of the alternatives kind of came about in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s as a function of the clients that I was actually working with at that point in time, which were a lot of investment bankers and were, were kind of interested in that space. They had a lot of personal restrictions with how they could invest. And the best thing that we could do is kind of look at some alternatives where they had no control, whether it be private equity or real estate or hedge funds. They were very familiar with them. They were very comfortable with them. So it was an easy way to start. And then we went through you know, the tech bubble of the early 2000s and the dot-com bubble. And we started to really see how those investments started to perform and how they held up in some very, very dark times. And I had them in with a lot of other clients as well. And as we continue to see more and more success, um, not only just from a performance standpoint, but from uh, an asset protection standpoint, clients became more interested. It became a much larger portion of our assets, we were able to still grow money without taking on the risk, and it kind of ballooned from there. Okay. So how long have you been investing in alternatives, Stephen? We're probably looking at north of 20 years. And so I think that we've developed a good little niche over time and really understanding them, having been through a lot of different market cycles, both good and bad, which has given us a really good understanding of how they're going to perform, what we should expect, how you craft a portfolio of alternatives to make sure that just you want to be diversified with equities, you want to be diversified with alternatives the same way you want to be diversified with fixed income. And so we've learned a lot about what to expect, where you can take some risks, where you don't want to take risks. And so from that standpoint, for over the last 20 years, I think we've gathered a lot of experience and a lot of institutional knowledge. People are starting to get it, but I think we've got a leg up in some respects because we've been doing this for, as you said, over 20 years. Let's talk a little bit about what does alternatives mean? Because to your point, there's a lot of talk about it currently, but we've been doing it for a long time. And the talk can mean a lot of different things, right? Alternatives is kind of a catch-all phrase for a lot of different products. 
So talk to me a little bit about how does Hightower Bethesda think about alternatives? How do we define them? What does it mean to us? So I think the first thing is just understanding that it's an asset that for the most part is not remotely correlated to stocks or bonds. And that's the first thing. Sure, are there investments that might be a little bit more correlated than others, 100%? Does it always help to have markets going higher? Yes, of course, 100%. But for our standpoint, we traditionally use the alternatives portfolio as a standalone vehicle to get steady rates of return without putting on what we think is too much risk. Limiting the downside, having that diversification, having the, you know, the core component be our multi-strategy piece, then you bring in some private equity, then you bring in some real estate. For certain clients, you're going to take you know, maybe some more satellite approaches depending upon the size and the depth of their knowledge and comfort and risk tolerance. But in general, it's about getting that kind of key structure in place that doesn't really matter what happens to the stock or the bond market. We're not really predicated on the returns. And that was kind of the general philosophy that we've always embraced with this strategy, which is, it's great. Market's going to go up. Market's going to go down. Interest rates are going to go up. Interest rates are going to go down. But what are you going to do from a return standpoint when the stock market goes down and interest rates move higher? meaning your bond prices go down, which means you're generally not making or you're losing money in bonds. And the stock market goes down and you're losing money in stocks. So are you just going to throw your hands up and say, okay, well, I guess that's just the time of year that it is or the time of the decade, and we're not going to make any money for our clients? We never really thought that that was a reasonable path to take. And so by having this component, and again, it's a large component, as most of our clients know, anywhere from 20 to upwards of maybe 50%, depending upon the size of the client and their liquidity needs. We have a component that we are comfortable with providing steady rates of returns, regardless of the market environment, regardless of whether or not the market's going up or down, regardless of whether or not interest rates are going up and down. And so you have this piece of the puzzle that is you know, kind of always chugging forward, might not move as fast as equities, but we're hopeful that maybe you get to the same spot at the end of the road with a lot less volatility and a lot less stress. I think you made some great points there, and, and I've heard you talk about that before, that you know equities, basically, you make money when they go up, and bonds, basically, at this point, since yields are so low, you make money when interest rates go down. And I think I had mentioned that this topic is very much in vogue right now. The reason is because we're at all-time high in the markets, and until just recently, all-time lows in terms of interest rates. So you're kind of at a cusp where, well, what else do you do if that's the only way you get return? And so I've noticed, I know you have too, over the past six months to a year, but increasingly more frequent, we're seeing articles about, you know, going to alternatives, looking for alternatives from these two kind of broad asset classes, so, you know, equities and bonds. And so talk to me a little bit about that, like the dilemma of finding return, asset allocation, because this is something that people really care about right now and and we think is pretty meaningful, but we've always thought that. (laughs) Yeah. I, I mean, the biggest dilemma I think that we find ourselves in right now is getting access to top tier managers. 
It's something that I think we've prided ourselves on for literally two decades of really having the best of the best. And we have them in our portfolios. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, a lot of these top managers have been closed, which has created a little bit of a problem. And one thing that we will always make sure that we do is we're not going to sacrifice just to get money into alternatives. We'd rather sit around than wait. And I think what you're starting to see here is the struggle over the years has always been, if you open up the newspaper, you turn on the TV, you know, hedge funds are awful, hedge funds are bad, CalPERS is getting rid of their hedge fund exposure, and there's just been massive amounts of negative connotations to it. And one thing that we've always talked about for our clients is, look, if you own top quartile funds, you're doing very, very, very well. What you see a lot of times in these headline story is benchmark indexes, which as we know, They have top quartile managers in there and they have bottom quartile managers in there. So the masses from a return standpoint don't always do that well. And then when you get the headlines about a CalPERS or something like that, when you really read between the lines, what you're seeing is they're cutting out some of the allocations they have to smaller non-performing funds because they can't get their billions and billions of dollars stuffed into some of these top quartile funds anymore because of capacity issues. We're fortunate, but at the end of the day, we have a lot of our money already entrenched in these top tier funds and we get periodic access and we think that we can, you know, continue to move money in there and find some other alternatives. And from a portfolio construction standpoint, you know, we're always searching for people with good longstanding track records of consistent and predictable returns. And I think we have a leg up on others that are out there because they don't have that institutional knowledge. A lot of times they'll just look at a fact sheet and say, oh, this guy's done well over the last couple of years without really having the ability to understand why they've done well, what's been the driving force behind their returns. If they did do poorly, why did they do poorly? And that's something to really have a deep understanding about what managers are doing, what market environments are working, why people are doing what they're doing. And you're seeing people jump on the bandwagon because, to your point, interest rates are pushing all-time lows. How do you make money in that? People look at the stock market and say, hey, is it overvalued? We don't 100% know that. But again, we've had some good runs, and they're looking for other places to go. I just question their ability sometimes to really execute on that without having the knowledge of really how to construct portfolios the right way. Yeah, I I would just add to that that there is no doubt that there is significant difference in outperformance between top tier, you know, and bottom tier managers. And so where we really concentrate our efforts in terms of finding those managers is in the alternatives category where, you know, you really get paid to be in a top quartile manager, which Stephen, you know, you were talking about. And then the other thing I would add is as well, we're kind of waiting on some of the capacity issues. There are always opportunities that arise. For example, due to COVID, there was dislocation. We think there's going to be more dislocation in certain private, you know, credit markets, et cetera. And so those are things that we opportunistically can start allocating capital to in the meantime. So, you know, there's always opportunities, same thing with, you know, private real estate, some dislocation, their opportunistic kind of opportunity to add. So I think definitely some great, great points you made there. How at Hightower Bethesda has this 
affected our asset allocations from a higher level when we think about the splits between equities, bonds, and alternatives? Great question. And by the way, just to rewind 30 seconds, I think, to the point that you're making, patience is a virtue. And sometimes people are reluctant to be patient. And sometimes people are reluctant to maybe hold cash or have a liquid alternative looking for the right thing. You don't always have to jump in with both feet. And I think that's a little bit to your point. You know, opportunities are going to be created in certain market environments. And if you have everything that's invested, which is, by the way, and I'm going to get to an allocation, but it's one of the reasons why when clients say, why do I even bother having fixed income? Well, fixed income is probably going to outperform cash. But if your alternatives are relatively illiquid and you go through a period of time like the first quarter of last year and equity markets are down 30 plus percent, well, where are you finding the resources to buy equities when they're down? Or where are you finding the resources to take advantage of you know, that private credit fund that you mentioned that could be a great opportunity because of the dislocation? So you know, the asset allocation component is very important. And so how do we use that within utilizing the alternatives? What we've done, um, as you know, over the last couple of years is we've been very underweight fixed income. And this has been going on for probably the past five to six years. And the reason why we do that and can do that is because the volatility makeup of the alternatives portfolio is similar to that of a bond portfolio. And so we measure risk based upon volatility, the propensity to potentially lose money in a given market. And so if we've got an asset class and alternatives that can give us, let's just be generous somewhere between equity and fixed income-like returns over the course of a four or five or seven-year period, but only have the downside volatility of bonds, why wouldn't you want to get that enhanced return? And that's always philosophy, which is why we've done that. If we fast forward a whole bunch of years and, hey, maybe interest rates are at 6%, we can buy a 6% municipal bond, which gives us a 9% return, okay, we might think differently about our allocations, but that's not where we are right now. And so the alternatives have given us an ability over the last bunch of years to dramatically underweight our fixed income portfolio or fixed income weighting without taking on tremendous amount of risk. And even for several clients, even reduce their equity exposure a little bit because we've got other tools in the shed within the alternatives category that we think can provide similar type returns to equities and maybe give a little bit more downside protection. So I think that's kind of been the overarching theme of Hightower Bethesda for the last couple of years, which is definitely underweight fixed income and overweight alternatives. Uh, And that's kind of been the baseline across the board. I think the other thing that's important to talk about is yield, the search for it, and generating income for clients has been progressively harder because yields have been so low. So talk to me about what we're able to do at Hightower Bethesda from an income component for our clients through the use of alternatives. Great question. And I think that's one of the things we've been successful in in accomplishing over the last several years. So there's a couple of ways to get cash flow through alternatives, generally speaking, it's either in some form of a private credit fund or generally speaking, our preferred route is within the confines of private real estate. And our focus over the last several years in real estate has been predominantly 
income producing real estate, it's generally much more defensive by nature. The bulk of the return that you're going to receive is through cash flow, which by the way, uh, for those not familiar, is generally tax advantaged income. And what we mean by that is that uh, real estate, you can depreciate the asset that you own. And since we don't do it through a REIT structure generally. Um, we actually own the buildings and our limited partners in the vehicles that we invest in. The buildings themselves get depreciated and therefore a lot of the income we receive is tax beneficial income whereby it is considered return of capital and then it gets taxed as a long-term capital gain when that building is sold. And so between the combination of higher levels of income that we're getting looking at the triple net lease space, an area that we've had you know, a lot of success with really over the last five to six years. Again, very defensive in nature. You're able to get yields well north of you know, six, seven percent. And when we're looking at a fixed income environment where the 10-year treasury has been south of three percent for probably the past four or five years, you can really see how the benefits of getting tax advantaged income north of six or 7%, maybe even migrating into the high single digits can become exceptionally attractive. And you can recognize that benefit in really one of two ways. Number one is you can commit the same dollars to real estate, for example, that you would to a fixed income investment, therefore getting tremendous amounts of more cash flow or for those who were taking a more conservative route, you could potentially have a third of the money in real estate that you would in a fixed income investment and generate the same amount of cash flow, if not even more that you would get in a traditional fixed income investment. And you still have those two thirds of a dollar to invest in maybe traditional fixed income if you wanted and get yield on that. And so it's just been a great ability for us to leverage our resources, leverage our relationships to get what we think to be our solid investments for our clients, generate good levels of cash flow, particularly in the environment that we're in, and maybe even get a little appreciation at the end of the day. Yeah. And I'd love to add some context to that. So for our listeners, if you need income off of your portfolio, the traditional means for generating that income have been things such as cash, right? So do you remember back in the day when you used to actually get income paid off of your cash? I remember it was a long time ago. But the problem is we're, we're going on 12 years where basically you've gotten nothing on cash. So that's out. You know, There's really very little to no ability to generate yield off of cash. So then kind of going up the risk spectrum, then you have bonds. And bonds have traditionally been viewed to be a less risky kind of investment. Of course, it depends on what type of credit quality and all that type of stuff. So the riskier the bond, then in theory, the higher yield you get. And so what we've seen across the board is all of those yields have really come down too, to the point where even if you're in a very, very, very risky bond, maybe you're getting 5%. Right. And then if you're in a very, very safe bond, maybe you're getting 2%. And then our safest bond, the US 10 year government bond, has been, I know you mentioned under three, but in most recent history, it was actually all the way down to 0.6. 
and it is now hovering around 1.5. So again, if somebody locked into a 10-year commitment to the U.S. government bond in search of yield, they're looking at a 1.5% return, which really doesn't even keep up with inflation. So that's just kind of providing some context on yield generation and the search for income. So you know, to your point, those yields on private real estate that we can know and understand the properties supporting that income generation can be particularly attractive if you do have the ability to get access to it. Correct. And one thing you can also add to that commentary, Leah, when you take a look at, you know, you take the 10-year treasury at one and a half percent, you're not even counting the fact that over the course of a 10-year timeframe, yes, you might be guaranteed to get that one and a half percent return. But along the way, if interest rates rise, you're going to see some potentially hefty price volatility in that treasury. And your total return over that period of time, or maybe a two-year, three-year span, could be much lower. And right. that's one of the reasons why we like you know, things like real estate, which is, you know, in general, we're getting a higher yield if for any reason assets do decline in a nominal way we're at least getting these high single digit coupons that will help offset any potential decline in pricing. And again, generally speaking, the real estate that we invest in have inflation kickers or automatic increases in in the lease payments and the rents that these people have to pay. And because of that, you generally get some stability if not increase in actual value along the way, even if you come through a period of time where interest rates do rise. So you get that little bit of a defensive mechanism there whereby you're getting more cash flow, less downside volatility, and it's kind of a win-win from our standpoint, as you're well aware. Yeah. And last thing I'll kind of add to this is the other option where I've seen a lot of people kind of turn to for income generation has been dividend-paying stocks right? So if you own a stock and it pays a dividend, then some people have been kind of turning to that to generate income for themselves. It's always made me cringe a little bit because, <laughs> because you know, the underlying asset can be volatile. And a great example of that is energy stocks. So yep. energy stocks pay really attractive dividends. And so I know for a fact, a lot of Older people that were looking for income were heavily invested in these type of names, you know, Exxon, Chevron, and big names. They're not going out of business, but when energy prices completely collapsed, so did the stock. So again, these are kind of some of the challenges between searching for something that will pay you income and understanding the nature of the product that you're holding. So. <laughs> so talk to me a little bit about just Hightower Bethesda and what is our view on alternatives? What's kind of our strategic asset allocation to alternatives? What does that look like? Within the alternatives bucket itself? Yeah. I think that, look, I think the general target um, that we strive for, and I say strive because everyone has to remember that we are dealing with investments that are not always open. And sometimes you have to be patient for things to open, or you might be doing due diligence on another fund that you want to bring into the mix, and that takes its own time. But the, in general, our target range is roughly about 50% of our investments in what we consider to be multi-strategy funds. Um, and these multi-strategy funds 
basically because clients ask, well, what do they do? Well, guess what? They do everything. And I think we'll get into the weeds on future podcasts on what multi-strategy funds really do. But in general, they have the ability to play in the equity markets, whether it be long or short. Same in the credit markets. You might look at arbitrage events where you might have company X buying company Y and they've got you know a little bit of a spread that they can capitalize on it. They could be looking at currencies. They could be looking at interest rates. Um, they could be looking at commodities. I mean, they can basically look at anything under the sun. And what we look for in that bucket are funds who have been doing this for a really, really long time, a very good solid track record, consistent, steady returns that we know that based upon what goes on on the market on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, we've got a pretty good idea of what that fund is going to perform like. And that's kind of the meat and potatoes of what our overall allocation uh, is doing. And you know, we're looking for funds, as I said, in that category that have bond-like volatility, but somewhere between equity and bond-like returns. Then that other 50%, In broad buckets, half of that, so 25% of the portfolio, generally looking at private equity. And one of the reasons why we love private equity, and it's a slide that we've shown in a whole host of presentations to clients and prospects, is that there's a massive decline in availability of publicly traded stocks over the last decade or two. And more and more companies are staying private for longer. There's a larger secondary market for original investors to get out. So they don't always need public markets to be the exit strategy for them. And the one thing that we like about private equity is it provides you with the ability to own companies who are designed and being managed for the future. Publicly traded company, as we all know, are really focused on what did you do for me this quarter? Because if you didn't do a good job for me this quarter, the market's gonna take my stock out to the woodshed and shoot it. And executives are gonna be under fire, managers are gonna be under fire, and it's not a good situation. So what we've seen is a lot of times decisions are made for the short run so that they can produce a positive earnings announcement in a given quarter, potentially sacrificing the long-term benefits of the company. And that's why we like private equity, because you get to invest in really great companies who are looking ahead, um, who are making the best decisions for the company at that point in time. And they're not worried about what happens over the next three or six months. They're worried about what happens over the next couple of years. I mean, if you take a look at the statistics, private equity in general has been one of the top performing asset classes over the last several decades. Sometimes it's a little bit harder to compete with publicly traded markets when they're on fire like they have been in some recent years. But in general, the long-term data suggests that private equity is generally superior to the public equity markets. And then the other 25% bucket comes from, is in real estate. And that again, uh, from a private standpoint, we are generally looking for a lot of defensive oriented, cash flowing investments there as we just kind of hit on. Sometimes we will look for companies or, or funds who will invest in, you know, maybe not the highest of income strategies. Maybe you might look at multifamily, uh, maybe some industrial space. We shy away from, you know, land development deals, things that are highly levered and exceptionally risky. We really are looking to hit singles and doubles across the portfolio, particularly on the private side. And then, you know, once you fill out those three kind of buckets, 
then you end up finding for you know certain clients some of the more satellite options, whether or not there's a, a long short fund that we get access to that we think could be of value. Sometimes those things are just equity substitutes. You know, our general feeling, as you know, from a hedge fund standpoint or alternative standpoint is we need some level of value. And that value can come from a couple of components. Are you providing more return than the markets, but you're taking a little bit more risk? Okay, that's fine, but we don't love it. Are you providing more return and the same risk or more return and less risk? Great. Are you providing a, you know, 70 or 80% of the return, but you're taking on 30 or 40% of the risk of the market? That adds a lot of value to us. And that's how we kind of measure things on a risk return basis. And so when we start taking a look at these satellite pieces, that's really when you start to get into the nuances is, okay, you know, we have an equity substitute vehicle. Are they going to provide that much more return above the market? And if they are going to do it, how much more risk are they really taking? Because we always worry about the downside. So every single investment we make is what can potentially go wrong. And so that's kind of how you avoid the pitfalls of alternatives in general, kind of how you avoid pitfalls of everything from an investment standpoint, as you know. Um, but I think that that's the general, the 50, 20, 25 scenario. You factor into your point, you know, private credit, you get opportunities there that can be exceptionally helpful and attractive, particularly, you know, in a low income rate environment. So you can find those vehicles and investments to potentially provide a little bit more cash flow. But again, we like it on the private side because again, you're dealing with generally investments in private businesses versus publicly owned equities or publicly owned fixed income instruments. And the issue with publicly owned fixed income instruments is you're at the mercy sometimes of market forces and people just wanting to have a mass exodus. And next thing you know, something's down 30% because people need liquidity. It has nothing to do with the fundamentals of the business. And we saw a lot of that in the first quarter of last year into early second quarter where people were struggling for cash. They just sold every single thing that was in sight. Right. And I think, Stephen, that's a perfect segue into kind of in closing, this all sounds great, right? Everything that you've said so far has sound great. What do people need to know about investing in alternatives in terms of kind of cons, right? So we've talked about there's a lot of benefits, but what are some of these kind of cons that people should be aware of? the, The biggest con, I think, that you have to always deal with first and foremost is liquidity. Right. Illiquid investments work because they're illiquid. Once you add a layer of liquidity, you're taking illiquid investments and giving them the opportunity to be sold at pandemic lows. And that's not good for anybody. So you want illiquidity. You want people to not be able to sell. So you have to structure your portfolio and your investments in a manner in which you can absorb that illiquidity in times of stress in the world. And I think that's the biggest factor that people have. And that's why, you know, it depends upon the client. Are you, you know, at a 20% weighting or are you upwards of a 40 or 50% weighting? A lot of it is a function of where's your liquidity what are your liquidity needs for your life, for retirement, for college, for homes, for your business? Whatever it is, you have to understand what your liquidity needs are. 
And that's how we can kind of come about from a portfolio standpoint and a financial planning standpoint, which you do such a great job of, where can you take that illiquidity? To what level is that reasonable? So I think that's the first and foremost negative that you have to really kind of understand. And I think you also have to be realistic out there of, you know, knowing and making sure that you know what you're doing. There's a reason why hedge fund returns as a mass have not been great over the years. And that's because there's a lot of people for varying reasons who hang up a shingle and call themselves a hedge fund. And that at the end of the day is not necessarily a good thing. So due diligence is key. Understanding who you're investing with is really one of the most important aspects. And so making sure that whoever it is that, you know, any investors working with or where they're going is that they understand and, and are getting the advice from people who know what they're doing and have the experience to do it. Because I think those are the two biggest pitfalls that you have, illiquidity and lack of knowledge. I would agree with those things. So I think you uh, have done a really good job, Stephen, today of giving us an introduction to Hightower Bethesda's use of alternatives, how we think about it, why we think about it. But as you and I have always discussed, it's really hard to boil down to a 30-minute conversation. So we are going to do more episodes talking about this, getting more granular. And of course, we always encourage people if they have questions to reach out to us. And I know we both spend a lot of time with education of our clients so that they feel comfortable and understand. So uh, thanks so much for listening. And thanks so much for joining us, Stephen Rosen. Thank you, Lee. I appreciate it. And I look forward to getting into the weeds at some point in time in the future. For sure. Hightower Bethesda is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Hightower Bethesda and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.
Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.